Good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, good to see all of you here on this fourth week of Advent. Greetings to those joining us online uh, and at home. So, 70 years ago, this guy by the name of Karl Barth, who is one of the more prominent uh, 20th century theologians, uh, he was a, lived in Switzerland, and Barth is sort of famous in part because he led this movement into what's called neo-orthodoxy. So liberalism, and this is a particular theological movement, not, don't think politics, but this movement of theological liberalism that said people are good, and it was sort of moving away from this idea that we needed a savior. Uh, there, were, there were theological, there's a rise of theological liberalism, and Bart was one of the first to say, I can't stand in a pulpit every Sunday morning during World War I and World War II and the Holocaust and everything else and say that people are good deep down inside and that with a little bit more time and a little bit more education, everything's going to be great. No, we got to talk about sin and evil, and he was one of the guys that led that. He also wrote a lot of things. So he was very prominent. He wrote really thick, dense, heady he was, a, he was a very bright guy on the cover of Time magazine, sort of a star in the theological world. And he came to the United States to give a series of lectures. And this was sort of a thing back, you know, before there was reality TV. People were tuned into philosophers and theologians. They were on the cover of Time magazine. Different, different moment. Uh, but he came and he was giving a series of lectures. And so he's asked by a reporter... What is, Dr. Bart, this brilliant guy, supposedly nobody had read everything Bart had written, not even Bart had read everything that Bart had written. So he's asked, Dr. Bart, what is the grandest thought you have ever held? What's the most profound truth that you've ever pondered? Like, what's the most significant idea out there? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Now that was uh, not what anybody was expecting from Karl Barth. But I think it was really spot on. Because I think that is, that is a, just a profound statement. Uh, yes, it's a kid's song. But it's also a profound statement. Christianity is not in the end simply this... Uh, you know, ethical idea. It's not just a moral, philosophical thing. It's a, it's a comprehensive worldview based on the proclamation that God loves us and he sent his son. And this changes everything. And we know this because it's written in the Bible which he has revealed himself and his plan to us. So, um, uh, this, is a, this is a big Advent idea that God loves us, and it's a, it's a profound one to, to sort of end our Advent series with. But I woke up this morning, and, and like literally my first sort of semi-coherent thought was, okay, First uh, John 4 is the right passage, but uh, you, you've got to somehow wow them with my love. There's got to be more about uh, how that is to feel and the impact and, and you know, somehow smuggle that truth under the radar. So I changed things a little bit in my sermon. I don't, I've said this before, I sort of don't do that anymore. I'm too old. When, when Late in the week, if there's a new idea, I'm like, Lord, you could have given me this idea a long time ago. I do not 
I'm not nimble anymore. I don't want to do this. But, but I'm, I'm doing it a little bit, and I, I still think that 1 John 4 is the, is the key passage. So Advent, right, we're in this Advent series, and Advent is uh, when we look back to the first coming of Jesus, and then we look ahead to his promised return, and it's, uh, it, it is, kicks off the church calendar, and there's four weeks in Advent, and each of these weeks has a theme. So four weeks ago, the theme was hope, and we lit the candle of hope. And then uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, three weeks ago it was hope, and two weeks ago it was, uh, uh, it was peace, and then a week ago it was joy. And next Saturday, this Saturday, it will be, uh, we'll light the Jesus candle as we hit Christmas Eve. Today's theme is love. So in the, in the scheme of things, so this idea that there's four themes in Advent is not found in the Bible. It grows out of sort of the tradition of the church. And this tradition doesn't give passages, okay? It gives themes. So the themes of hope and peace and joy and love. And when it comes to love, there's lots of places that we could look in the Bible. I mean, there's lots of places to look Generally, I mean, there's, when you talk about love, it's, there's movies and there's songs and there's poems and there's, you know, stories and there's art and there's, I mean, I Googled love just for kicks uh, yesterday. 16.2 billion entries by Google uh, on love. So lots of people talking about love. When it comes to this book of trying to figure out where to land, overwhelmed by options. I mean, literally, there are some that would say this book is all about love. Okay, so I, I, I think that's a little, it's a little bit shy of a, of a careful answer, but okay, not entirely wrong. When I was a college pastor, by the way, I used to ask students what the Bible was about. Okay, so this was at a secular university, and I would say, you know, this is you're supposed to be entertaining the big ideas and the philosophies and joining the conversations going on for 3,000 years and what really matters. And the Bible is like the, the best-selling book of all time. You ought to know what it's about. You ought to read it. You ought to have, be conversant with it. And have you read the Bible? And someone would say, well, yeah, you know, I've read a lot of it. And I go, so what's it about? And the, the answer, love, which came up with some frequency, I generally took to be a non-answer. They didn't really know, right? This is just sort of a safe, well, it's about love. Okay, well, yeah, maybe sort of not entirely. But we could say God's plan, God's redemptive, loving intervention is what we are told in this book. We could come one level down from that and look at some of the themes in the book. So one of the ways that theologians like Bart <laughs> will come at the world is through something called systematic theology. So they will look systematically at topics and watch them develop from Genesis through Revelation. So it'll take a topic. The topic could be uh, God, or it could be uh, holiness, or it could be sin, or it could be evil, or it could be whatever it is, and you just watch how it develops. As opposed to saying, I'm just going to study the, the book of Genesis, or I'm going to study other things. You, you could have a systematic approach to the Bible. So there's these books, systematic theologies. It's one of the things you study in, in, if you're going into ministry. And what you know, if you're going to read a systematic theology book, is that there will be a chapter <laughs> on love. 
right? A, a big chapter on love, on love and on God's love, because it's a big idea. So there's love. We can just look at this systematically. We could also take a step below that and look at some of the books of the Bible. There are 66 books that make up the Bible. Some of the books are particularly focused on love. The book of Ruth, uh, the book of Jonah, uh, Song of Solomon. I mean, these are all sort of picking up on aspects of love. Beneath that, we could look uh, at some of the chapters in some of the books. So, 1 Corinthians 13 is sort of a chapter. It's, it's Paul describing love. It's read at weddings all the time. So we can just look at a chapter. 1 John 4, which we're going to look at, is, is a chapter that's sort of devoted to the theme of love. Under the chapters, we could look at some of the, some of the stories that get told that are about love. So the parable of the prodigal son is about other things as well, but it's also a story of the father's love for his son. Or we could look at some of the other themes, like the law is, is got, got a lot to say about love. The first commandment is, you know, that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Shall no other gods before me. I've got to be your first love. And when Jesus is asked to summarize all the law, he says, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So we could look at themes around love that we find in different chapters. We could look at verses that are specifically about love. John 3.16, a classic one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We can go one step below that and just look at some words that are all about love. So in English, the word love has a whole bunch of, of parallel words in Hebrew and Greek. So in the Greek, there were, at the, at the time uh, that the New Testament was being written, there were three dominant words for love. Phileo, which was brotherly love. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So phileo was a, sort of a, a, the love between brothers, the love of loyalty and virtue and, you know, sort of commitment. And then you get the word sturge, which is sort of the love that a mother has for a child, for an infant, and sort of that, that compassion and protection and, and devotion. And then there's the word eros, from which we get erotic, sexual love. But when the, the, the Greek, or excuse me, when the Hebrews scholars were looking to translate the Old Testament out of Hebrew into Greek, so the Old Testament, that era ends about 400 years before Christ is born. So you have 400 years of, of a, this intermission between the Old and New Testaments. During that 400 years, one of the things that happened is that Alexander the Great conquered the world, and he forced everybody to learn Greek. So suddenly the Greek language, everybody had to learn Greek. And the, the people, the Jewish people, stopped speaking Hebrew. The scholars still knew Hebrew, the rabbis knew Hebrew, but the people could no longer read the Old Testament, their Hebrew scriptures. And so some of the scholars got together and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And when they were doing this, they said, we don't have a word that talks about God's love. Like, we've got a word for brotherly love. We've got a word for, you know, sort of the mom's love. We've got a word for uh, erotic sexual love. We don't have a word for this all-encompassing uh, all commitment, this self-sacrificing love. And so that's where the word agape comes from. 
So it's, it, is, it was a new word that was created when they were translating the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. And then that's the word that, uh, that the biblical writers, you know, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, uh, that's the word that they were using. So uh, we could look at all kinds of different slices of love, from the Bible as, as everything all the way down to individual words. I want us to look in this love chapter, 1 John chapter 4. So this is not, so John, the Apostle John, wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote some letters. The letters are at the, at the end of the New Testament. And uh, we're looking in the first letter that he wrote, the fourth chapter. I want to read beginning with verse 7. So he's describing uh, God's love and ours. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So there's, there's a lot in this passage. Uh, we, it, it's, it's important to note that, uh, that John is being very clear. When it comes to defining love, when it comes to understanding love, when it comes to a model of love, it's not <laughs> that we love God. We're not looking at our commitment to God and saying that's what love is because our commitment to God is very very interruptible, very fleeting, very broken. Every aspect of our life is, is, is impacted in some way by sin. And so uh, we're not looking at that as the model. We're looking at God's love for us. That's what love, agape love, that's what we're being called to. And so uh, it's also worth noting that, that he does not define love in terms of emotions. He doesn't define it in terms of butterflies in the stomach and, you know, all the wonderful things you think about when I say, you know, baskets full of puppies or, you know, something like that. So uh, not, that, not that God is down on those things, not that God is down on emotions. Last week I mentioned Zephaniah chapter 3 where God uh, sings over us, right, like a, like a, like a, a mom uh, singing over an infant, right, that, that compassionate, that warm, completely consuming. I mean, that, that, that engenders warm feelings. So I'm not down on that, but, but the love that is being described here is being, this is love that God sent his son who died in our place on the cross. That's what love looks like. It is a self-sacrificing, giving, dying for someone else kind of activity. So that is how love gets defined. Now, I want to focus on this, uh, this line in verse 8. It says, God is love. Um, this is what love is. God is love. Like, you, you have to have love because that's what it means to be following Jesus. God is love. Now, just for the record, in, in Greek and Hebrew, one of the ways they emphasize a point is by repeating a word. I've 
mentioned this before, you know, Jesus sometimes will say, truly, truly, I say unto you, that's because that's a way to try and drive home. I'm really, I want to, I'm underlining this point. I'm, I'm putting it in bold. I'm, I'm using an exclamation point to repeat the word. One of the other things that they do, and they do it here, is to make an association, okay? God is love. God is so loving Love is so important, I'm trying to make this point so forcefully that what I'm going to say is, God is this. Right. Now, you can't push this too far. This is not a math theorem, the associative property or whatever it is. If A equals B, then B equals A. Uh, no, we're not saying that. Uh, love is not God. We could say, you know, uh, love is blind. Blind is not love. I mean, you just, you just can't push this too far. It's a, it's, a, it's a syntactical trick to try and emphasize a point. So we're not going to limit God to one attribute, and, uh, and, and we're, we, we, could, we could get sideways all kinds of ways. But there is clearly a point being made here that the love of God is very powerful, very overwhelming, and it needs, uh, it needs our total attention. So, uh, I, 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 again, as I thought about this uh, this morning and thought about the changes that I, I wanted to make, I, I came away saying, okay, somehow I'm making the point that God is love, and I want people to feel what a difference that love ought to make. Right, so we're shaped by forces and factors. We're shaped by relationships. We're shaped by the news. We're shaped by fears. We're shaped by all kinds of things. What would it look like to be shaped by this idea that God loves me? God is committed to me. The God of the universe, the all-powerful, eternal, omnipotent one, what does it look like to live a life when I think that he loves me? Well, so what I was going to say and talk about is, is sort of the aspects of God's love. I think it's important for us to understand, and this comes out of First John, that the love of God is subject-generated, not object-elicited. So... So God loves us not because we're lovable. God loves us because God is love. This is, this is God is the hero of this story. Right? We're not. It's not that God looks down and says, oh, how cute. Oh, how precious. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how perfect. Uh, oh, how noble. No. I mean, God knows, right? And this is actually remarkably good news. God knows the worst about you, right? And he's not rethinking his love because of the worst about you. Because it's not, he's, it, that information doesn't change the fact that his character is love. The love for us comes from God, not because we earn it. I think it's also important to just recognize that, that God's love is sort of inexhaustible, it just keeps coming. And again, this is, this is the quality of an infinite, perfect God. So you might have heard this week that uh, 
some scientist somewhere, I, I didn't really read much of this story, but some scientist somewhere uh, created fusion for the first time. So this nuclear reaction, and as opposed to fission, we now have fusion, it's a different, different deal altogether. And it's supposedly, it's, I mean, if we can get fusion, then we have unlimited clean energy. This is the game changer of all game changers. And so for the first time, not just in theory, but in a lab, they created a fusion experiment. And uh, I, I put this in the Friday update. I made, I made reference to this in a scientist. I, I, don't know, I don't know who, but this scientist who reads it wrote in to me and he said, hey, uh, I teach um, like physics and earth sciences at such and such a college. And uh, we have been saying for, uh, for at least 30 years that fusion was 30 years away. So my whole career has been fusion is 30 years away. He goes, I've been doing this for 30 years, and we keep saying fusion is 30 years away. It's not getting any closer. He goes, it just got closer. We're five years away. Okay, who knows? I don't know who this guy is. I have no idea. Uh, but... My thought was fusion is this promise of, of never-ending energy, but God's energy is greater than the potential of fusion, right? It, it doesn't tire. God's love is inexhaustible. So um, I, I want you to know that, and there's passages, I had a lot of uh, sort of Paul in Romans and Ephesians and other places talking about how uh, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, not angels or demons, not heights or depths, not anything can separate us from the love of God. This is all about we're loved because of who God is and God's goodness and God's power. The challenge is uh, that's still a little bit uh, abstract. It's a little bit uh, Karl Barth-like. It's a little bit uh, heady. And so I, I could see this coming, and so I, I went late in the week, and I said, maybe it's time to tell the story about, uh, about the Aka Indians, the, the five missionaries that lost, lost their lives, uh, because the a previous pastor at Christ Church, Walt Liefeld, uh, his wife, Olive Liefeld, had been married before. She was, she was one of the missionaries that went down, this is, I think, in the late 50s or in the 60s, they went down to Ecuador to try and bring the gospel to this uh, Indian indigenous group of uh, the Aucas. And all five of these young men were killed in their first encounter with these, uh, with the Aucas. And so Olive had been married two years to Peter Fleming and, uh, and Peter was killed. There's a picture of them. Uh, I think, we, can we pull that up? Can we pull up the picture? Maybe not. Okay, well, here it comes. So this is, there was a big Life magazine spread, and there was a number of books that were written about this. Elizabeth Elliot wrote one called Through Gates of Splendor. Olive wrote one called uh, Unfolding Destinies. And there's a movie made uh, called The End of the Spear, major motion picture. And uh, if you don't know the story, read the movie. The, the point is, no, read the book or watch the movie, okay. <laughs> the point is, after they were after their husbands were killed, Olive went back down, and Elizabeth Elliot went back down with her kids and lived there and shared the gospel and stayed with them, right? Even after uh, 
Uh, even after they had killed their husbands, these women continued to reach out. And uh, that sort of captures a little bit of it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that passage translates in such a way that while God could expect nothing from us, but actually, hatred and rebellion, <laughs> he sent his son. So there's part of that understanding of seeing love illustrated. But I, that, there's another story that I want to tell. And I've told this story before, but not for a while. And it is, uh, it was perhaps the most powerful time when I had to rethink God's love. So 12 years ago, uh, we, uh, we had a sailboat. A uh, friend and I had a sailboat. And we took our, both of us took our youngest sons and we sailed across Lake Michigan. So I, I had uh, Jason and uh, Dan had Jordan. And sailing across, we were going to South Haven, and uh, sailing to South Haven, it, that's a 12, 14-hour trip. And uh, so we get up really early, you know, 5 in the morning, we go out, and we, we sail across. And it was great. It was wonderful. We'd done it a number of years. And uh, then we would stay in uh, South Haven uh, overnight, and then get up early the next morning and sail back. But early the next morning when we got up, there was bad weather and, and monstrous waves, and it just, we could not, we could not do this. So we spent the day playing in, um, we were playing there in Michigan. And uh, at some point in the afternoon, we decided to go to the beach, and the waves were huge. I'd never seen waves this big in Lake Michigan. Of course, they're bigger on that side usually. But these were really, really big. And so we go out, and we're out there for 20 minutes doing, you know, body surfing and having a great time. But it was just kept getting, the waves kept getting bigger and bigger. And finally, I, I said, uh, Dan and I were talking. We said, we, we, need to, we need to put an end to this. We need to get out. So we said to our boys, you've got five, five more minutes, and then we need to get out. And after five minutes, um, the boys didn't want to get out. So uh, I'm having a conversation, perhaps a conversation, that some of you have had with a you know, 15 or 16-year-old that says, I, I don't want to. And you're like, yeah, 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 but it's, it's getting dangerous and, and uh, you, need, you need to uh, get out. And, but I'm having fun. I go, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. It's really fun. But look, it's just getting too rough. If you got in trouble, I couldn't. I said, if you got in trouble, I couldn't help you. And he said, uh, one, I'm not going to get in trouble. And two, if you got in trouble, I could help you. I'm fine. So we're negotiating this, right, in, in about knee-deep water when Dan says, hey, those guys are in trouble. And uh, we look up, and there's, so there's a riptide, and there's a big pier that goes out uh, at South, uh, South Haven, and there's a bunch of people caught in the riptide, and they're going out. And so we get out and we run, and it's a, it's a you know, few hundred yards down the beach, and then it's a few hundred yards out into the water uh, on this, uh, on this uh, pier. And by the time we get there, uh, others had, had pulled an, all the kids out of the water that were caught, and they'd pulled a few of the adults out. And we were there was pulling out another adult, but then there's, there's one guy, and he's, he's now, we watched him sort of hand over his son and then go face down in the water. And there's people in the water there, so people jump off the dock to help, um, and they're trying to help this guy. He's a big guy, 
And Dan sort of instantly sort of takes over and he's, he's coordinating what's happening. And of course there's pandemonium and lots of people are screaming and yelling and everybody's got ideas. And, and, and it ends up, Dan's sort of in charge and, and, uh, and we're trying to coordinate with these three guys that are in the water to try and help this guy, get this guy turned over, get this guy, you know, up. And we keep trying, we keep trying, and we can't get it. And, I, and then at one point I said to Dan, I go, Dan, I'm going in. And he says, no, 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 you can't. And I said, this isn't working. We're out of time. And he goes, he goes that guy's been face down in the water for eight or ten minutes. He goes, he's, he's gone. He says, these other three guys are in trouble. They just haven't figured it out yet. He goes, we, I need you here to help me get these guys out. And that did prove to be very challenging to get these guys up, but we, we did. And then right as we were getting the last guy up, uh, here comes the, you know, the fire and the paramedics and the police and everybody. And so we get sort of relieved. But it, it's obvious as we're walking down the pier, the four of us, that this guy has, has drowned and he had young kids and lots of, you know, there's lots of crying and you can imagine. So we sit down. Uh, at the end of the dock, and we just are sort of recovering a little bit, trying to get our bearings. And we're rehearsing, like, what could we have done? What could we have done? Like, what, what should we have done? How could we have done this differently? How could we have helped this guy? And that conversation would go on most of the rest of the day. And then the next day when we sailed back, I mean, we talked about it a half dozen times. Like, what if we, what if we tried this? What if we tried this? And, uh, and I kept saying, I, I, I think I should have jumped in. And Dan kept saying, no, no, no. That would, that, one, you weren't going to be able to help. Two, you just would be more of a problem and you wouldn't have been able to help us get these other three guys out. You jumping in would have been the worst thing that would have happened. And he eventually persuaded me. But, but over the course of the next weeks, and, uh, I am periodically dealing with guilt. This young father died. And he's, he was in his 30s and... A good guy, read about him in the paper, and it's just, there's just this grief, like, what could we have done? So fast forward another few months, and I am, uh, I'm walking downstairs early in the morning, and I, I put, and I put it this Friday, again, this John Stott prayer that is one of the, one of the things that I've held on to. And it starts, good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Spirit of God. Heavenly Father, I praise you. You are, the, you are the God of heaven and earth. You are the creator of everything everywhere. Lord Jesus, and then it's, Lord Jesus, you're the savior of the world. Uh, and, but I didn't say it that way. I sort of have it memorized, sort of don't. I just said, Lord Jesus, you saved me. And when I, when I thought that, when I thought it exactly that way, the next thing I thought is he would have jumped. He would have gone in, right? Uh, you saved me. And I thought, no, 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 no. Jumping in was a bad idea. We've been over that. I couldn't have helped. Bad idea. Might have died. Bad idea. And then I thought, well, Jesus knew that he was going to die, and he jumped in. Like, you know, I, I thought, I'm just, I'm just sort of processing this. And I thought, yeah, yeah, different, different story. D didn't, you know, been over this. Couldn't, I, I needed to stay there in order to help these other guys. And I'm sort of thinking this. And then I have this new thought. In, in all the hours of rehearsing this, in all the scenarios I had devised, right, in all the things, what have we done this, what have we done this, what have we done this, it had never occurred to me. 
I could have sent Jason in. Better swimmer than I am. He would go on to not only be a lifeguard, but to train lifeguards, to be captain of the water polo team, to be on the swim team. Jason is a good swimmer. But it's so unthinkable. Like, it just, it never occurred to me in any scenario that I would send my son into harm's way. And yet, that's what God did. Right? That's the message. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son on a mission to rescue you. That's the gospel. It's unthinkable. Literally, I didn't think it for three months. Every scenario I came up with, it never occurred to me. Oh, I could have put my son at risk. That's the story. Greater love has no one but that they would lay down their life for someone else. God laid down his life. Jesus, the Son of God, laid down his life. The Father sent the Son. This is, this is the love that we are talking about. <laughs> It's that magnitude of love. God is love. God loves you. It's not because you're lovable. You're not. Nor am I. We are broken. He's not loving us because we're great. It's his nature, and it changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are... Um, staggered by your love, but uh, not often enough. We get consumed with other things that hardly matter, even for five minutes. And so we confess that we are shaped by all kinds of lesser things than by who you are and what you've done for us. As we move through this week, may we be staggered again by uh, what you did, that you sent your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.